Hey, yeah. I think I stayed up a bit too late last night reading because I'd be super duper tired today. Um. Um, so yeah, I do, I do be, oh, my phone needs plugging in as well. Um, I do be super duper tired, uh, yesterday. Uh, however, this is, this is going to be the last time I'm going to get to read all weekend, because you're staying the whole time. Um, and this is a reason, it's only ten pages, so I think I can get through it in twenty minutes, and then be bed at twenty past midnight, and I get to sleep in until... 8.30 tomorrow, that's a good 8 hours of sleep, good stuff, we, lo- we love to see it, anyway, can't be more than 7 months left, Tunday, it wasn't hard at first, he had made friends enough to shelter him as he first, as he travelled first out through the city and satellite towns, and then towards the mountains, he knows Besapara and North, North Moldova, he had travelled here, researching the story about Awadi Atif, a lifetime ago, he curiously feels safe here, and a regime cannot, in general, turn overnight from one thing to another. Bureaucracies are slow, and people take their time. The old man must be kept on to show the new women how the paper mill is soused down, or how the stock-taking check on their flower order is made. All over the country there are still men running their factories, while the women mutter among themselves about the new laws, and wonder when something will happen to enforce them. In his first few weeks on the road, Tunde took photographs of the new ordinances, of the fights in the street, of the dead-eyed men imprisoned in their homes. His plan was to travel for a few weeks and simply record what he saw. It'd be the last chapter of the book that's waiting for him backed up on USB sticks and in filled notebooks in Nina's apartment in New York. He heard rumours that the most extreme events had been in the mountains. No one would say what they had heard, not precisely. They talked grimly of backward country folk and of the darkness that had never quite receded there, not under any of a not under any of a dozen different regimes and dictators. Peter, the waiter from Tatiana Moskalev's party, had said they used to blind girls. When the wor- when the power first came, the men there, the warlords, blinded all the girls. That's what I heard. They put their eyes out with hot irons. So they could still be the bosses, you see. And now? Tunde asked. Peter shook his head. Now we don't go there. So Tunde had decided, for want of another goal, to walk towards the mountains. In the eighth week, it had began to be bad. He arrived in a town by the edge of a great green-blue lake. He walked, hungry, through the streets on a... Sunday morning until he came to a bakery with open doors, a fug of steam and yeast leaking deliciously into the street. He proffered some coins to the man behind the counter and pointed at some puffy white rolls cooled in a wire rack. The man made the accustomed hands like an open book gesture to ask to see Tunde's papers. This had been happening more frequently and Tunde showed his passport and his news-gathering credentials. The man leafed through the passport, looking. Tunde knew for the official stamp declaring his guardian, who would then have co-signed a pass for him to be out shopping today. He went through each page carefully. Having conscientiously examined it, he made the papers sign again, 
a little panic rising in his face. Tunde smiled and shrugged and tipped his head to one side. Come on, he said, though there was little indication the man spoke any English. It's just some little rolls. These are all the papers I have, ma'am. Until now, this had been enough. Usually someone would smile at this point at the absurd foreign journalist or give a little lecture in broken English about how he must be properly certified next time and Tunde would apologise and give his charming grin and he would walk out of the store with his meals or supplies. But this time the man behind the counter shook his head miserably again. He pointed towards a sign on the wall in Russian. Tunde translated it with help of his Facebook. It was roughly... $5,000 fine for anyone found to have helped a man without, without papers. Tunde shrugged and smiled and opened his palms to show them empty. He made a looking around gesture, cocking his head over his eyes and miming a scouting of the horizon. Who's here to see? I won't tell anyone. The man shook his head, clutched the counter, looked down at the backs of his hands and there, where his cuffs met the wrists, he was marked with long scars, scars upon scars, older and newer, fern-like and coiled. Where his neck pulled away from the shirt were the marks too. He shook his head and stood and waited. Looking down, Tunde grabbed his passport back from the counter and left. As he walked away, there were women standing in open doorways watching him go. Women and men who were willing to sell him food or fuel for his little camping stove became fewer and farther between. He started to develop a sense for those who might be friendly. Older men sitting outside a house playing cards. They'd have something for him, might even find a bed for the night. Young men tended to be too frightened, and there was no point talking to women at all. Even meeting their eyes felt too dangerous. <sighs> when he walked past a group of women on the road, laughing and joking and making arcs against the sky, Tunde said to himself, I'm not here. I'm nothing. Don't notice me. You can't see me. There's nothing here to see. They called to him first in Romanian and then in English. He looked at the stones of the path. They shouted a few words after him, obscene and racist words, but they let him go on. In his journal he wrote, For the first time today on the road, I was afraid. He ran his fingers over the ink as it dried. The truth was easier there than here. Halfway through the tenth week came a bright morning, the sun breaking through the clouds, dragonflies darting and hovering over the pasture meadows. Tunde made his little calculation again in his head. Enough energy bars in his pack to keep him going for a couple of weeks, enough film in his backup camera, his phone and charger safe. He had been in the mountains in a week and he had recorded what he saw there for a week or more and perhaps then he would get the fuck out with this story. He was in this dream so securely that, at first, rounding the side of the hill, he did not see what the thing tied to that post in the centre of the road. It was a man with long, dark hair hanging down over his face. He had been tied to the post by plastic cords at his wrists and ankles. His hands were pulled back and his shoulders were strained. The wrists fastened behind him. His ankles were secured in front of him and the same cord ran around the pole a dozen times. It had been hastily done by someone inexpert in ropes and knots. They had been, they had simply bound him tightly and left him there. There were the marks of pain across his body. 
livid and dark, blue and scarlet and black. Around his neck was a sign with a single word in Russian. Slut. He had been dead for two or three days. Tunde photographed the body with great care. There is something beautiful in cruelty and something hateful in artful composition and he wanted to express both these things. He took his time over it. He did not look around to scout his position or make sure he was not being observed from afar. Later he couldn't believe he had been so stupid. It was that evening that he first became aware that he was being followed. It was dusk and though he had walked seven or eight miles on from the body, its lolling head, its dark tongue were still in his mind. He walked in the dust at the side of a road, through densely clustered trees. The moon was rising, a yellow clouded fingernail of light between the trees. He thought to himself from time to time, I could make a camp here. Come on, take out the bedroll. But his feet kept walking to put, put another mile, another mile, another mile between him and the curtain of hair falling over the rotting face. The night birds were calling. He looked out into the darkness of the wood and there, among the trees to his right, he saw a crackle of light. It was small but unmistakable. No one would take that particular thin white momentary filament for anything else. There was a woman out there and she made an arc between her palms. Tunde inhaled sharply. It could be anything. Someone starting a fire. Lovers playing a game. Anything. His feet started to walk more quickly and then he saw it again in front of him. A slow, deliberate crackle of light, illuminating this time a dim face, long hair hanging down, the, the mouth, a crooked smile. She was looking at him. Even in the dim light, even far off, he could see that. Don't be afraid. The only way to defeat this is to not be afraid. But the animal part of him was afraid. There is a part in each of us which holds fast to the old truth. Either you are the hunter or you are the prey. Learn which you are. Act accordingly, because your life depends on it. She made her sparks fly up again in the blue-black darkness. She was closer than he had thought, and she made a noise. Low, croaking laughter, he thought. Oh, God, she's mad. And this was the worst of all, that he might be stalked for no purpose, that he could die here with no reason. A twig broke close by his right foot. He did not know if it was her or him. He ran, sobbing, gulping with the focus of an animal. Behind him, when he chanced to glance, she was running too. The palms of her hands set the trees on fire. Skittish flame along the dusty bark and into a crisp leaves. He ran faster. If there was a thought in his head, it was, There will be safety somewhere. If I keep going, there must be. And as he came to the top of the rising, curved hill path, he saw it. Not even a mile away. A village. A village with lit windows. He ran for the village. There, in the sodium lights, this terror would be bleached from his bones. He'd be thinking for a long time about how he'd end this, how he'd end this, since the third night with his friends told him he had to leave, that the police were going to door-to-door -door asking questions about any man who was not properly certified with an approved guardian. On that night, he'd said to himself, I can make this stop at any time. He had his phone. All he had to do was charge it and send one email, maybe to his editor at CNN and maybe copied to Nia. Nina, till tell them where he was. They would come and find him, and he would be a hero, reporting, undercover, rescued. 
He thought, now, now is the time, this is it. He ran into the village. Some of the downstairs windows were lit, and there was the sound of radio or television from some of them. It was just after nine. For a moment he thought of banging on the door, of saying, please help. But the thought of the darkness that might be behind those lit windows kept him from asking. The night was filled with monsters now. On the side of a five-story apartment building, he saw a fire escape. He ran for it and began to climb. As he passed the third floor, he saw a dark room with three air conditioners piled on the floor. A storeroom, empty and unused. He tried the lip of the window with the tips of his fingers and it opened. He tumbled himself into the musty, quiet space and he pulled the window closed. He groped in the dark until he found what he was looking for. An electrical socket. He plugged his phone in. The little two-note sound of it starting up was like the sound of his own key in the lock of his front door back at home in Lagos. There, it's over now. The screen was bright and he pressed the warm light of it to his lips, inhaled. In his mind he was home already, and all the cars and trains and aeroplanes and lines and security that would be needed between here and there were imaginary and unimportant. He sent an email quickly to Nina and to Temi and to three different editors he had worked with recently. He told them where he was, that he was safe, and he needed them to contact the embassy to get him out. While he waited for the reply, he looked at the news. More and more skirmishes, without anyone being, without anyone being willing to call this an outright war. The price of oil on the up again, and there was Nina's name too, on an essay about what's happening here inside Besapara. He smiled. Nina had only ever been here for a long weekend press junket a few months ago. What would she have to say about this place? And then, as he read, he frowned. Something felt familiar about her words. He was... Sorry, I just read ahead and it confused me. He was interrupted by the comforting, warm, musical ping of an email arriving. It was from one of the editors. It said... I don't find this funny. Tunde Edo was my friend. If you've hacked this account, we will find you, you sick fuck. Another ping. Another reply, not dissimilar to the first. Tunde felt panic rising in his chest. He said to himself, it'll be okay. There's been a misunderstanding. Something's happened. He looked up his own name in the paper, and there was an obituary. His obituary. It was long and full of slightly backhanded praise for his work in bringing news to a younger generation. The precise phrases implied very subtly that he had made current affairs appear simple and trivial. There was a couple of minor mistakes. They named five famous women he had influenced. The piece called him well-loved. It named his parents, his sister, and he died, they recorded, in Besapara. He had been, unfortunately, involved in a car crash, which left his body a charred wreck identifiable only by the name on his suitcase. Tunde started to breathe more quickly, and he had left the suitcase in the hotel room. Someone had taken the suitcase. He flipped back to Nina's story about Besapara, and it was an extract from a longer book that she'd be bringing out later in the year with a major international publishing house. The newspaper called the book an instant classic, and it was a global assessment of the great change based on reporting and interviews from around the world. The stand first compared the book to de Tocqueville to Gibson's Decline and Fall, but it was his essay. 
his photographs, stills from his footage, his words and his idea and his analysis. It was paragraphs from the book he had left with Nina for safekeeping, along with parts of the journal he had posted to her. Her name was on the photographs and her name was on the writing. Tunde was mentioned nowhere. She had stolen it from him entirely. Tunde let out a noise he had not known within him, a bellow from the back of his throat, the sound of grieving, deeper than sobs. And then there was a sound from the corridor outside, a call, then a shout, a woman's voice. He didn't know what she was shouting. To his exhausted, terrified brain, it sounded like, he's in here, open this door. He grabbed his bag, scrambled to his feet and pushed open the window and he ran up to the low, flat roof. From the street he heard calls. They weren't looking for him before, they were looking at him now. Women in the streets were pounding and shouting. He kept running. He'd be all right. Across this roof, jumped to the next. Across that roof, down the fire escape. It was only when he was into the forest again that he'd realised he'd left his phone still plugged in in that empty storeroom. When he remembered and he could not go back for it, he thought his despair would destroy him. He climbed a tree, lashed himself to a branch and tried to sleep, thinking things might look better in the morning. That night he thought he saw a ceremony in the woods. He thought that from his high perch in the tree he was awakened by the sound of a crackling flame, felt momentary terror that the women had set the trees on fire again, and that, he'd be, that he would burn alive up here. He opened his eyes. The fire was not near at hand, but a little way off, glimmering in a forest clearing. Around the fire there were figures dancing, men and women stripped naked and painted, with the use of the symbol of the eye in the centre of an outstretched palm, the lines of power emanating sinuously around their bodies. At times, one of the women would push a man to the ground with a bright blue, with a blue bright jolt, placing her hand on the painted symbol on his chest, both of them whooping and crying out as she showed her power to him. She would mount him then, her hand still on his her hands still in the centre of him, still holding him down, the frenzy of it showing on his face, urging her to hurt him again, harder and more. It had been months since Tunde had held a woman, or been held by one. He began to yearn to climb down from his perch, to walk into the centre of the rock circle, and to allow himself to be used as those men were used. He grew hard watching. He rubbed himself absently through the fabric of his jeans. There was the sound of a great drumming. Can there have been drums? Would it not have attracted attention? Oh, it must have been a dream. Four young men crawled on all fours in front of a woman in a scarlet robe. Her eye sockets were empty, red and raw. There was a grandeur to her step, a certainty in her blindness. The other women prostrated themselves, kneeling in full body before her. She began to speak. And they, and they to respond. As in a dream, he understood their words, although his Romanian was not good and it was impossible they were speaking English, and yet he understood. She said, "Is one repaired? Pre repaired? Is one prepared?" They said, "Yes." She said, "Bring him forward." A young man walked into the centre of the circle. He wore a crown of branches in his hair and a white cloth tied at his waist. His face was peaceful. He was the willing sacrifice that would atone for all the others. She said, 
You are weak and we are strong. You are the gift and we are the owners. You are the victim and we are the victors. You are the slave and we are the masters. You are the sacrifice and we are the recipients. You are the son and we are the others. Do you acknowledge that this is so? All the men in the circle looked on eagerly. Yes, they, they whispered. Yes, yes, please. Yes, yes, now, yes. And Tunde found himself mustering it with them. Yes. The young man held out his wrists to the blind women, and she found them with one sure motion, gripping one in each hand. Tunde knew what was going to happen. Holding his camera, he could barely make the finger on the shutter release press down. He wanted to see it happen. The blind woman at the fire was all the woman who had nearly killed him, who could have killed him. She was Anuma, and she was Nina, and she was the woman on the rooftop in Delhi, and she was his sister Temi, and she was Noor, and she was Tatiana Moskalev, and she was a pregnant woman in the wreckage of the Arizona Mall. The possibility had been pressing in on him all of these years, pushing down on his body, and he wanted it done now, wanted to see it done. In that moment, he longed to be the one with his wrists, wrists clasped. He longed to kneel at her feet, his face buried in the wet soil. He wanted the fight over. He wanted to know who won, even at his own cost. He wanted the final scene. She held the young man's wrists. She pressed his forehead to his. He, yes, he whispered, yes. And when she killed him, it was ecstasy. In the morning, Tunde still does not know whether it was a dream. His manual camera is advanced by 18 pictures. He might have pressed the shutter button down in his sleep. He will only know if the film is developed. He hopes it was a dream, but that his own terrors, if... Oh, sorry. But that has its own terrors. If in some dream place he had yearned to kneel. He sits in the tree and thinks things through from the night before. It does look better in the morning somehow, or at least less terrifying. The report of his death can't have been an accident or a coincidence. It's too much. Moskalev or her people must have discovered that he'd gone, that his passport had gone with him. The whole thing must have been staged. The car accident, the charred body, the suitcase. This means one very important thing. He can't go to the police. There is no more fantasy. He had not quite realised before that this fantasy still clung to the edges of his body. That he can walk into a police station with his hands up and say, Sorry, cheeky Nigerian journalist here. I've made some mistakes. Take me home. Because they won't take him home. They will take him out into a quiet place in the woods and they will shoot him. He is alone. He needs to find an internet connection. There will be somewhere. There will be one somewhere. A friendly man who will let him use the home computer for just a few minutes. He can convince them in five lines that it's him, and that he's really alive. He's shaking as he climbs down from the tree. He'll walk on from here. He'll stay in the forest and head for a village. He passed through four days ago with some friendly faces. He'll send his messages and they'll come for him. He shifts his bag on his back and sets his face to the south. There's a noise. There's a noise in the bushes to his right and he whirls around, but there's noise on his left too and behind him and there are women standing up in the bushes and he knows then, with terror like a springing trap, they've been waiting for him, waiting all night to catch him. He tries to break into a run but there's something at his ankles, a wire, and he falls down, down, struggling and someone laughs and someone jolts him on the back of the neck. 
When he wakes, he's in a cage, and something is very bad. The cage is small, and the cage is made of wood. His backpack's in there too, with him. His knees are pulled up to his chest, and there's no room to stretch out. He can feel from the throbbing ache in his muscles that he's been like this for hours. He's in a woodland camp, and there is a small fire burning. He knows this place. It's the camp he saw in the dream. Not dream. It is the encampment of the blind women, and they've caught him. His whole body starts to shake. It can't end here. Not trapped like this. Not thrown on the fire or executed for some god-awful tree-magic religion. He rattles the sides of his cage with his legs. Please, he shouts, though no one's listening. Please, someone help me. There's a low, throaty chuckle from the other side of him. He cranes his neck. He cranes his head to look, and there's a woman standing there. Got yourself in a fucking mess, ain't you? She says. He tries to make his eyes focus. He knows the voice from somewhere. A long way away and a long time ago. As if the voice were famous. Because he blinks and she comes into view. Because it's Roxanne Monk.